good to see you. It's good to say good morning as well. We're hoping that we can get a few more Sundays where the weather's as good as that and where people can still stand outside before we're all kind of like rushing in and taking cover and uh, feeling cold. Um, but um, we'll uh, try and deal with that when it comes. Um, it's it's really good to continue our series this morning. I'm going to jump in here this morning because I would like to round up what I'm saying sharpest so that we can maybe um, listen a little bit more to the Holy Spirit and respond um, just and see the kingdom demonstrated amongst us even as we've worshipped this morning. Is that okay? So you ready to come with me? On uh, We are on this series of the advance is the, is the overarching theme that we're feeling the Lord speaking to us about. The kingdom of God is the sort of subsection, if you like, of the topic. And within the topic of the kingdom of God, I've been on a little run, basically, for the last two or three weeks, talking to you specifically about the four four particular aims of the kingdom. And we're going to do the fourth one this morning. Then I think Bruno's going to be sharing next week in kingdom authority. And then we're going to get into Matthew chapter 13, which is all sorts of beautiful parables about the kingdom, stories that Jesus taught us and talk to us about. Um, But what we've tried to help you understand, so quick recap uh, so far, is that the kingdom of God was Jesus's favorite topic. It was the thing that he loved to speak about. So if Jesus loved to speak about the kingdom of God, we need to get a handle of it, don't we, if we want to be his followers. Everything that Jesus talked about, the parables that he talked about, the, the teachings that he gave, the demonstrations that he showed were all within the framework of how Jesus understood this idea of the kingdom of God. And so far what we've done is we've tried to give you the big overarching story of God from beginning to end to help you understand that God always desired heaven and earth to overlap and to interlock. He wanted almost like a marriage between heaven and earth. So he wanted, the, and so let me just put it up here, the first um The first slide, I think, yeah. The kingdom of God, the loving rule and reign of God. That's how we define the the kingdom of God. The loving rule and reign of God, the place where God's activity is, okay? So God has always wanted his loving rule and reign, what happens in heaven, to be on earth and to be stewarded by his partners, the ones that were made in his image. And that's what we've tried to help you understand from beginning to end. Eden was a picture of that, and God has always wanted that. But sin... Um, stops us from accessing the kingdom of God because what happens with sin is it's not just that we do bad acts, but it's like we actually want to build our own kingdoms or we get distracted by the other kingdoms of the world. And so we end up kind of consciously and subconsciously sometimes just actually being involved in the things that oppose the kingdom of God, all right? And, um, and it's important for us to realize that that God, despite the fact that sin stops that through God's great dream for the world, didn't die there, that God continued through his willing partners on the earth, people like Abraham and Moses and the children of Israel and King David and Esther and others, that God still wanted his dream for the world to come to pass. And um, and ultimately, though, for all those great heroes of the faith that we get inspired by, the children of Israel, that's basically the story of the, New, the Old Testament, that they, they didn't really fulfill the dream of God. And Jesus had to come as the fulfillment of Israel. So Jesus comes in line with all that's been before to fulfill that as the perfect Israelite, as the perfect man, as the true Israelite, as the one who could do for us what we couldn't do for ourselves. So Jesus came to basically set up his kingdom because humanity couldn't set his kingdom up in their own strength, right? And so Jesus came to establish his kingdom and to oppose and destroy, as we're going to see, the opposing kingdom. 
There was an opposing kingdom, and that was the kingdom of darkness. And so the sort of summary is to date is that we've looked at when Jesus came to inaugurate his kingdom and to set up the rule and reign of God on the earth. He, um, we have the kingdom manifesto, and that manifesto was when Jesus, after he was baptized, he read from the scroll of Isaiah, and he read in Luke chapter 4, the Spirit of the Lord is on me because he's anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor, right? So I'll not read that whole verse because we've read it over the last few weeks, but that was the manifesto of the kingdom. It was like a picture of what would happen when heaven and earth overlap. And then we said, but the way into this government, if you like, so what I said last week is any government will have a manifesto, but they will also have like a little kind of, I don't know if you've been wa- well, watching any of the stuff in the, um, the, 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 the labor conference in the Tory, they've all got their little slogan, haven't they, like at the front, and this, the slogan kind of sums up their manifesto. And the kingdom manifesto, which we read in Luke 4, was summed up with a little message. And the message was, repent, for the kingdom of God is at hand. And so Jesus said this numerous times. If you want to access this kingdom, then you have to turn your heart away from seeking your own kingdom and turn your heart towards me. Give up every other allegiance and, there, and you'll be able to access my kingdom and know my rule and reign. That heaven will literally make its home in your heart when you do that. And so that was, if that was the message, then how did Jesus go about bringing it to pass? And we said that the method was, the kingdom method was, it was all about relationship. That God came to show us that God is a God of love, who in himself is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, an eternal family. And as God comes in the form of Jesus, he came walking in intimacy with the Father. He was always in connection. That's why he spent time with Jesus in prayer. Or sorry, that's why Jesus spent time in prayer with the Father. That's why he walked in intimate communion with the Father. And that overflowed into relationships with his disciples, with his followers, with the guys that he called to himself. Because Jesus wanted us to know that the kingdom was not some kind of vague concept but it was rooted in a people, in a family. And he wanted us to be the people, the church. So what Jesus did with the disciples was a foretaste of this today. The church of Jesus, under the kingship and lordship of Jesus, he's our king, people living under that as a community, as a people. people. I was just thinking as we were worshiping today, we've got people from every, from all tribes and tongues and nations, from all different backgrounds and you know, jobs and spheres of influence here. Like, where where else do you do this in life? There's nothing else like this. This is the this is how the the kingdom gets outworked. It looks like a family. It looks like a, a family that love one another and love Jesus. And so, to finish this off today, well, what the question maybe still remains after all we've looked at the kingdom manifesto, the kingdom method, and the kingdom message. What I want to say is, what did it actually look like? What did Jesus do every day in his ministry? How strategically, if you like, did this manifesto get delivered? Because it's all well and good. We all know. So let's look at it from a human lens. It's all well and good when a new president or new prime minister gets up and says, here's our manifesto. Here's how we're going to change Britain. Or here's how we're going to change America. Or here's how we're going to do that. But they have to have a strategy to outwork that. And most of the time, you know, the people are usually left a bit disappointed, aren't they? Because it doesn't feel like they live up to the manifesto that they put out when they inaugurated their kingdom. And what I want to try and prove to you today, Jesus was the opposite. Jesus went over and above anything that we could ever imagine when he declared his manifesto through his mission. And so that's what we're going to look at today. The mission, 
the kingdom mission, the mission of Jesus. And to do that, I'm going to take you through. The best way I love to teach this is in Matthew chapter 4. And um, I was going to try and use it in my Bible, but I've just realized it's really hard to do that when you're holding a mic at the same time, right? But um, So I'm not going to do that. But imagine if I was holding a Bible right now, okay? I would be reading from this verse, okay? This will make sense in a moment. Let me read this verse to you. And then I'll, I'll, I'll explain how I'm going to teach this. It says this about Jesus in Matthew chapter 4. This is almost the end of Matthew chapter 4, right? And he went throughout all Galilee, teaching in their synagogues, proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom, and healing every disease and affliction amongst the people, right? That is at Matthew chapter 4, verse 23. If you were to flick over in your Bible to the end of Matthew chapter 9, right, it would say this. And Jesus went throughout all the cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues, proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom, and healing every disease and affliction. Now, does that look familiar? Do those two verses look really familiar? Yeah? It's basically almost word for word the same verse. At the end of Matthew 4 and at the end of Matthew 9. So what I want you to do is I want you to think about Matthew 4 as like an opening bracket. Okay? And Matthew 9 as like a closing bracket. Okay? Now, when I went to school... When you had to write like essays and stuff, did you ever get that talk like, if you want to write a good essay, you have to have an introduction, the main body, and then you have a conclusion. And to keep it simple, the introduction, you say what you're going to say, the main body is you say it, and the conclusion is you say what you just said. Did you ever have a sort of talk like that in English, like something like, which just sounded like stupid because you just write it once rather than three times, right? But anyway, that was, that's good English apparently, right? And so, um, or a good way to write an essay. And, and so Matthew is kind of doing that sort of thing here because in Matthew chapter 4, he's telling us what Jesus did and kind of setting us up for what Jesus is going to do. Now, if you were to flick through your Bible, which I was going to do, you know the way it's got different headings, you would see in Matthew 5 and chapter 6 and a bit of chapter 7, Jesus is teaching. That's the Sermon on the Mount, the greatest teach, if you like, arguably, that Jesus ever did. So that's Matthew 7, and he's also proclaiming the kingdom. In Matthew chapter 8 and Matthew chapter 9, you'll read of loads of different instances when he's healing the sick, right? And then it tells us at the end of Matthew chapter 9 what he's done. And then, which we'll get to at the end here, in Matthew chapter 10, he basically sends the disciples out to do it. So it's like Matthew is like smart, right? Under the inspiration of the Spirit. He's like clever dude, right? We need to stop thinking that somehow these guys just like literally just like sat one day and the Holy Spirit took, took their pen. They were guided by the Spirit, but they were clever and thoughtful the way they constructed their Gospels and Paul's letters and da-da-da, right? That's, the Bible is a literary masterpiece, okay? And so Matthew says, here's an introduction. Here's what Jesus is going to do. Now I'm going to show you him actually doing it teaching, proclaiming the kingdom, and healing the sick. Now I'm going to conclude by telling you what he's done. And then Matthew chapter 10, right, disciples, it's your go. Off, off you go and do these things that I've just done. And so these three things can be summarized. He proclaimed the gospel of the kingdom. He taught a radically new message of sacrificial love. And he healed every disease and affliction. Now, each one of these, you'll understand, is a sermon series in itself. So I'm not going to do that. You'll be glad to hear today. But in the rest of the time we've got left, I'm just going to try and say something about the three of these things. Because if we want to be people who demonstrate the kingdom, right, then this is what we are called to follow Jesus. And these three things, I think, particularly. Okay? Um, you all with me? Does that make sense? That give us a wee bit of a, a framework, okay, for where we're going. So the first one, Jesus proclaimed the gospel of the kingdom. 
Now, we've touched a little bit on this already, so I'm not going to say too much more on this, except to say a couple of things, okay? Well, the word proclaim, okay? So if he proclaimed, it was that word in the Greek. I'm not quite sure how to say it, okay? And it basically means a bold proclamation, the heralding of an announcement. It almost, if you can imagine in those ancient days, it had the idea of like someone with civic authority running into like the public square and reading a bold declaration, okay? That, that's what the word proclaim, kind of the context it came out of. And he proclaimed, what did he proclaim? He proclaimed the gospel. And we looked at this word last week. The word good news is the word evangelion, which is where we get the word evangelism from, to share the good news. And it was used in a kind of military context when a new king had come and won a great victory. This kind of like little soldier boy who would have ran into like the new town and he's like, your king has come. We've won a great victory. And the king is coming to establish his new rule. So you put these two words together in the context of the day that Jesus came about proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom. And you, you realize that what Jesus was doing, it was coming with this bold and joyous announcement. A great king has won a great victory. And he's coming to establish his kingdom on the earth. And so when Jesus came to town, like he didn't necessarily do it with a microphone. He did it over tables, and he did it on street corners, and he did it with all the kind of people that nobody thought he should be talking to. But what he was actually doing with his life, he was proclaiming, hope has come. Hope has come. This is a bold and joyous thing. Good news is here. It doesn't have to be the way it is. Now, the thing about it was, it was for everyone. Do you remember um, the song that the angels sung when Jesus was born? Glad tidings of great joy to all people. It was for everyone. The problem was the people that were well, a lot of the people that went to the church of the day, they didn't think they were sick. So they didn't think it was good news or they didn't hear it as good news. And they missed this unbelievable message of good news. A king has come to set up his kingdom on the earth. And so it was the sick, it was the marginalized, it was the prostitute, it was the outcast, it was the sinner, it was the blind that heard this message as good news. Can you imagine what that was like? If life had beaten you up so bad, and that the last person that you ever thought you would go to was like somebody who represented the church because you felt excluded, and all of a sudden a man comes who claims to be the Messiah, who's saying, good news, a bold and joyous announcement, the king has come. And it wasn't the gospel of just individual salvation that you'll go to heaven when you die if you say this prayer. It was the gospel of the kingdom that heaven was literally breaking in on the earth. <laughs> and this is what Jesus was proclaiming. And so this, the quick challenge and application to us is, I'll start with myself, is sometimes Jesus just doesn't get enough airtime. Sometimes you just don't talk about the good news enough. Sometimes you just don't proclaim it. But we've got good news. It's in our, should be pumping in our veins, right? And we've got good news to declare that Jesus has come. And the other thing that's a challenge is we carry hope. So first and foremost, we shouldn't be carrying complaint. Like, one of the things that is, like, I think one of the baddest witnesses for Christians is not just that they live, some people can live immoral lives or, oh, they're real hypocrites because they're out on a Saturday night doing it, da, da, da. Like, those are bad things too, right? That might not be great. But what's worse is just, like, somebody that you hear that's a Christian that's just, like, a mood sucker in their work. 
Is that all right to use that? Like they just suck the energy and life out of a room, right? Because they're just negative and complaining. And it's just like, for goodness sake, we're carriers of hope, of good news, or gossip. They're carrying those things. That's just the worst kind of testimony for a believer. But we are people that walk in and change atmospheres, not because everything's great in our world, but because we've got the hope of Jesus, the fact and the reality that heaven wants to invade earth. That's who we are, and that's what we get get to carry, to proclaim good news has come. Something new is happening in the world. Things don't always have to be the way they are. And of course, we work out how to empathize and sit with people in their grief. We know all that, but ultimately, we're purveyors of hope. Second one. He taught a radical new message. This is really interesting. So as well as proclaiming good news, he also taught. So preaching is slightly different than teaching, right? I'm trying to do both today, right? But when you, when you pre- preach and proclaim, it's kind of arrests the heart, right? When you teach it, you kind of like inform the mind. And Jesus did both, and we need both in the church. But when, people, when Jesus came to teach, he was teaching so he was proclaiming this message, and everybody was hopefully going, ah, like they're awakened. But then it's like the next thing is, well, what does that mean? What does the culture of this kingdom actually look like? It kind of fills out our understanding of what we're really talking about. So he proclaims the kingdom, something new is happening, but it's almost like after that starts to settle a little bit, then you, you, need, you need to understand what it actually looks like and means. So I don't know if you've ever been to a place where somebody's preached, and you're like, yes, well, like, Come on for Jesus. Like, walk out of the place. You're all pumped and the adrenaline's going. But then, like, the next day, you're like, oh, what, what, what does that actually kind of mean for? That's where you need the teachers, right, to help teach. And Jesus was doing, doing both of those things. And so, as well as proclaiming this message of the kingdom, he was also teaching. Now, what I think is really, really helpful for people to understand is when it comes to teaching um, the, me- the message Jesus taught, he did it in line with all that was taught before. Right, so he did it in line with all that we see in the Old Testament. So the Bible's one joined up book, okay? But what he was doing is he was radically reinterpreting what, uh, what the Old Testament really meant. Because it wasn't, see, what's really, really important, Jesus came, Jesus was a Jew. He came for the whole world, but he, he came in a sense to his own people first and foremost in some ways because he wanted them to get it. And he, he came within the tradition. So Jesus didn't necessarily come to a bunch of people that weren't interested in God. It was actually the opposite. They were really interested in God. The problem was they just got it kind of warped in their mind who God was, what God looks like, how God acts. Sound familiar, right? Sound familiar that lots of people are actually interested in God, just, you know, and lots of, you know, people that have even say they're Christians, but just haven't got the interpretation of who he is right, haven't had the revelation of his way. And so what they were doing is not only were they misinterpreting, but they were actually projecting to the world a wrong image of who Jesus was. And that's what annoyed Jesus, because Jesus wants us to know the Father. But if you're not showing the Father, then Jesus has got something to say about that. And he came to show us and reveal what that was like. 
And the way that they had understood it, so the first five books of your Bible, right, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, they are called, I don't know why I did that, but anyway, right there, they are called the Torah, right, or the Pentateuch is the, I think is the Greek word for it, which is means the five first books of the Bible, and, to, or it's, and Jews refer to that as Torah because there's lots of rules and laws there, and Torah means to guide, basically, literally it means to guide. And so there was loads of laws in, in the Bible and loads of rules, commandments and case laws and all that kind of stuff. And they were good because God gave it. It came from God. But the way they had used it was to serve their own agenda or to prop up their own means or worse, worse case, to exclude people. And so in short, they, they interpreted the law in a way that didn't reflect the one who gave the law, Right? So they, they interpreted law in a way that didn't reflect who God was. And so um, I, think, um, I think it's something like there. The Pharisees had summarized the law into 613 rules, 248 commands, 365 prohibitions, and bolstered that with 1,521 kind of recommendations after that. Think about trying to live up to that. Think about, you know, wondering how people are judging you, whether or not you've got like 10 of them right, never mind 613. Right? And this was, the, this was the context at which Jesus walked into. And so what would have happened is, I think Bruno might touch on this as well next week, but what would have happened was there was different rabbis, and they, they would have done this thing called this, halakha, right? And they would have had different interpretations of how they were to fulfill all those rules, right? So they would have taken the Old Testament, and they would have gone, right, I'm going to, like, use this, um, I'm going to interpret all these rules in this way, so, so this means such and such for your everyday life. And the rabbis would have debated this. So do you know the way Jesus, why I'm telling you this, do you know the way Jesus used to come in and say, you have heard it said, but I say to you. That means that they would have known what Jesus was doing. He was standing in this tradition where the rabbis took the Torah and tried to interpret it. So what Jesus does is, Jesus keeps saying, you have heard it said, but I say it to you. So he's reinterpreting the law. Now, think about all of that. Then one day, this famous verse that most of you all have heard, one day they come to Jesus and they say to him to test him. And what do they say? What is the greatest commandment? What, what are they trying to do? They're trying to go, right, what's your interpretation? We see that you're kind of, you're reinterpreting the law. What's your particular interpretation? So this is, remember this picture, and look at uh, uh, this scripture. And one of them, a lawyer asked him a question to test him. Teacher, which is the greatest commandment in the law? They're testing him. They're trying to like find him out, work him out, put him on the spot. Let's see if we can squeeze him here now. Because once he gives us the answer, then we'll be able to pin him. Then we'll be able to nail him. And Jesus is just like genius in this moment. I just love it. Like Talk about like a judo move. Where he just like, you know, that's unbelievable, right? And Jesus says this. And he said to them, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and your soul and your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. And the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Now look, on these two commands depend all the law and the prophets. So all those, whatever, what did they say? It was 600 and something rules, 320 amendments, 1,500 all of these hang, all the law and all the prophets hang on these two. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. Jesus is saying that we call this the Jesus Creed. The Jesus Creed is love God and love others. 
This is how we fulfill all the law and all righteousness. And then, you see, to understand this even better, what Jesus did was he took two scriptures from the Torah and he put them together. So what I just read is actually made up of two of what they would both, what, what any kind of good Jew would have known, two scriptures. The first one was Deuteronomy chapter 6. Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, or with all your might. Okay, so what Jesus was doing there was every day as a wee boy, Jesus would have got on his mommy's lap when he was a wee boy in bed at night, and he would have said this. It was called, I think uh, it might have been Broner, or one of the guys also spoke on this when we were doing Deuteronomy during the summer. It was called the Shema, which means hear in Hebrew. And so they would have said this twice a day. Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God is one. Your kids, if you were a Jew, would have known this off by heart since they could like walk, since they could talk. Every day they would have said this. And so Jesus took this. So this was no surprise. The first pit of Jesus' answer was no surprise because all good Jews knew this. And then he takes the second one, though. He takes, how'd that happen? He goes, uh, he goes to, go to the Leviticus one if you can find it, Johnny. He goes to Leviticus chapter 18, verse 19, and he says this, You shall not take vengeance or bear a grudge against the sons of your own people, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself, for I am the Lord. Anybody ever made it through Leviticus? <laughs> From like start to finish, yeah, okay. Right, well, you know, like goat's milk and different hairs and different fabrics, and you're like, holy smoke, this is like, I'm losing the will here. When you're like trying to like do your daily reading in the morning, and it's like in the middle of, well, hidden right in the middle of Leviticus, in between all that stuff that doesn't feel that relevant to our lives anymore, is this incredible verse. Leviticus chapter 19, verse 18. You shall not take vengeance or bear a grudge against the sons of your people, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself. So Jesus takes Deuteronomy chapter 6, Leviticus chapter 19, puts them both together and said, this is how you fulfill the whole law. The way that you interpret the law is not by coming up with a list of rules that are going to entangle people and make them feel that they can never do it, but you're actually going to teach them something even higher than that how to lay their lives down, to give up every other allegiance, to love God, and in loving God, to overflow with that love for other people. In this, all the law and the prophets are fulfilled. It's like, wow, the whole category for understanding the law now is what it should have always been, which is sacrificial love. This is what we call the Jesus Creed. It was just not reinterpreting the law but it was reordering the whole world around sacrificial love. The best way I can think to explain it is, do you know when you're teaching your child the ABCs? The Ten Commandments were like the ABCs. Right? Don't murder, that's a good thing not to do. Right? Don't steal, you shouldn't do that. Don't like want somebody else's, like, you know, uh, don't commit adultery. That's not right. Don't covet, that's not right. Love God with everything you've got. You know, it's like the ABCs, it's like the basics of what good, loving, morality looks like. It, but when Jesus came, Jesus was teaching us more than our ABCs. He was teaching us to become fluent in the language of heaven. And to become fluent in the language of heaven means sacrificial love. It means laying down your life. And the amusing thing about Jesus is he didn't just talk about it. He lived it. And more than he lived in it, he died it. If that's a word. He, he died. And he showed us that the most important thing in the world, that the strongest power that's in the world is sacrificial love. That this is the wisdom of the cross. I, I love um, I love this quote I talk about all the time. 
uh, of Greg Boyd, you've probably heard me say it before, when God wants to flex his all-powerful muscle, when God wants to go in the world terms, like, here's what my muscles look like. Here's what my power looks like. It looks like a cross. That's why the Bible speaks about the cross of Christ being foolishness to the world, but wisdom to us. Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. We have to walk with an alternative wisdom, which looks like the complete opposite of the power plays and the games of the world around us. It's sacrificial love. So it's not some wishy-washy, volunteers, downs there, sloppy kind of like, you know, nice feeling kind of love. It's love that raises the dead. That's how powerful it is. It's love that heals the sick. It's love that disarms evil of its power. And so when Jesus is hanging on the cross, like think about it, a carpenter's son, no wealth, no home, no pension, no, no nothing, naked, bleeding on a cross. He looks, in one way, in the world eyes, it looks absolutely pathetic. And yet, right there in that very act, evil, darkness, sin, and all its power is being drained of all its power. It's being defeated in that moment. Christ, the wisdom of God. The cross of Christ, the wisdom and the power of God. This is the message that we demonstrate as the people of God. We are called to walk in this alternative wisdom. We're called to be people of sacrificial love. But here's the thing, just in case you're thinking this too, you can't do that in your own strength. You, 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 you can't on. Any, anybody else got like compassion fatigue at the minute? Any teachers, any counselors, any, any, any business going into your work and you're just like, oh, everybody's busted here and I'm busted. And, you know, I, sacrificial love, just trying to get through the day myself. Anybody else feel like that at the moment? Like, that's very normal, by the way. There's nothing wrong with that. We're all feeling like that. So how do we react? As the people of God, that's why we need one another. That's why we need to be in the presence of God. That's why we need our daily devotion. That's why we need one another. That's why we need to pray together. That's why we need to run to the presence of God because we need to be changed and transformed. We need to be filled. We need to be replenished. We need to be overflowing with the love of God because people are desperate for a touch and a taste of the goodness of God at the moment. And everybody's racked and everybody's busted and it does no good if the church is just the same. And somehow together, Somehow together, we kind of bear each other's burdens. We forgive one another. We confess our sins to one another. We get accountable to one another. We love one another well. We stick together. And we become, by God's grace, people that can overflow with this incredible message that love, the sacrificial love of Jesus, will win the world. It's already done that. It's just, it's just being played out. But when, when we all get to heaven and we all stand around the throne and we hear those words of John, who is worthy to open the scroll? What we are not going to see is some like superhero, like WWF type Jesus coming, like, you know, jumping over the ropes, going like, I'm going to sort everybody out now. What we're going to see is a little lamb that was slain for the sins of the world. In the world's eye, there's nothing weaker that looks like a little lamb that's been slain. And yet, he is the one that's worthy to open the scroll because he was slain and has redeemed all men, all kingdoms to himself. This is the gospel of the kingdom of God. This is the gospel that we get to live. And finally, because of that, I'm just going to have to do this really quick. He healed the sick. And we'll talk more about this in the weeks to go. But that love was so strong 
that are healed of sick. And, you know, some people don't believe that Jesus still heals the day, and, and that, that's, you can believe that. But you have to actually be taught that Jesus doesn't heal the day to believe that he didn't, because you can't get it from reading the Bible. Right? You have somebody actually, actually, and people unfortunately have done that for years, but people, you have to actually be taught that God doesn't work this way today to believe that he doesn't. Because not, nobody lifting the Bible for the first time would ever come to that conclusion. Because Jesus wants to see heaven unleashed on the earth. And the two ways, the, the, there's different words for healing. But one of them is the word sozo. I might have heard of that before. There's different healing practices and, and, and programs called sozo. And it's because it means to heal. And it has two, twofold meaning of making alive kind of spiritually, but also to make healthy physically. And, and so when Jesus came, people got healed and all, like, it was like redemption was just unleashed in all different directions, body, mind, and soul, right? It was just like, it was like healing happened all over the place because heaven was just walking into rooms and just wherever it saw darkness and sickness and all the results of sin, they couldn't, it just got, it just, healing got released. And why did Jesus do it? Because sometimes what happens is we get a bit confused with healing. We think it's about having a good healing meeting or we think it's about like, you know, like being able to talk about how great our church is or something like that. We need, to, we need to get away from that. We need to look at it through a Jesus lens. And, and, and Jesus healed for two reasons. One, because he just loved people. He was moved with compassion. When he saw the blind men, he was moved. It means that something inside his spirit, has that ever happened to you? Like, you know, sometimes some of you don't know all the answers. You feel a bit inadequate because you don't think you know your Bible enough. You don't feel holy enough. But somebody sits in front of you with a cup of coffee and they tell you about your life and something inside you is moved. Like, you just find yourself starting to weep or you find yourself thinking about that person a lot, right? Just go with that. That's the Spirit of God working in you because He wants to bring healing into that person's life, right? So he had compassion and love. It was always motivated out of his love. It was love that, as we know, drove him to the cross to carry our infirmities. And then the second thing is, he, he healed the sick because he came to destroy the works of the enemy. He was righteously angry. Whoever makes a practice of sinning is from the devil, for the devil has been sinning from the beginning. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. And so when he saw people tormented, that's why demons flee when Jesus comes to town. Because Jesus was set against what they were doing in people's lives, the torment that they were bringing, the infirmities that sickness brought at times. And we don't have time to get into all the complexities of sickness today, but we do have enough to say that Jesus came to heal the sick. And we just can't get away from it. He didn't come for good meetings. He came for broken humanity. And this is what we want to hear and we want to understand the Lord saying this to, to, today. The, the gospel of the kingdom that Jesus came, he proclaimed good news. He taught this radical message of sacrificial love and he healed the sick. He's a great savior, isn't he? And then he said this. So let's go back just as we finish. Matthew 4, this is what Jesus is going to do. Proclaim the kingdom, teach the message of love and heal the sick. Matthew 5, 6, 7, 8, 9 shows us him doing it. You can read it yourself later. Matthew 9, this is what he did. The conclusion, close brackets. And then you turn your, you turn your page one more time and you get to Matthew 10. And this is what it says. Jesus called his disciples to him and he gave them authority to drive out impure spirits and to heal every disease and sickness. That, that sounds what Jesus just did, doesn't it? 
And now he's saying, right, authority on you. Off, off you go. These 12 Jesus sent out with the following instructions. Do not go amongst the Gentiles or enter the town of any Samaritans. Go rather to the lost ship of Israel. As you go, look, proclaim the message. The kingdom of heaven has come. Heal the sick. Raise the dead. Close those of leprosy. Drive out demons. Freely you have received. Freely give. If you read on, you'll see some of the other things that Jesus said to them. But the point I'm just trying to make is, Matthew's telling us this is what Jesus did. Here's him doing it. That's what he's done. Now it's over to you. The disciples get a dry run. This is before the Great Commission. This is kind of like, go and have a wee go. Come back and we'll chat about it. Because the main event's coming soon. And then I'm going to leave it fully and wholly in your hands. Jesus came. Johnny, could you put it back one? Just to think it is. Just one, one slide. Jesus came to reverse the flow. This is how I want to finish today. Do you remember that woman bleeding for 12 years? Like, as men, we don't get this, but there's women all over the world that are suffering this way right now, today. Imagine what that's like. Imagine the, the stigma of that. Imagine the pain of that. Imagine the shame, particularly in that culture, where the interpretations of the law would have still seen her as unclean just because she was bleeding. 12 years. And she just gets to Jesus. And immediately, the bleeding stops. Jesus reversed the flow. And it's a wonderful picture in the life of one broken woman of what Jesus is doing for the whole cosmos, for the whole world. Jesus came to reverse the flow. He came to destroy the works of of darkness. He came to demonstrate his kingdom amongst us. And he came to release his authority upon us to go and do the same. So, are we up for it? <laughs> I suppose is the question. Are we ready for it? Are our hearts awakened and stirred in these days that we're living through to carry and to proclaim the kingdom? Clara, Clara maybe you'll, you'll come. And what I'd love to do just in these moments, I'd love us to feel the challenge to go with this message today. I really, I really would. I want you to feel the, the challenge of that. But I just feel like before we closed this, this morning, that I'd love to pray for some of us who just need to see the demonstration of the kingdom in our own lives at the moment. And so just as um, Clara plays and we potentially saying we just don't have too much time but just for five minutes here before we close we don't want to just talk about the kingdom we want to see it come 